Napa know-how. It takes a lot to get excited about a bag, but most bags can't save you 20% on auto parts. That's 20% off headlamps, 20% off oil filters, 20% off virtually anything you can fit inside the 99-cent Napa reusable bag. So tell your buddies, there's a bag they just have to check out. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores while supplies last. Minimum three items. Exclusions apply. Offer ends 10-31-17. Today's show is sponsored by Talkspace, the online therapy company. For a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, you can pick an experienced, licensed therapist you relate to and feel comfortable with. Each and every therapist has at least a master's degree and has completed over 3,000 hours of supervised work. To match with your perfect therapist, go to Talkspace.com forward slash boom. And to show your support for this podcast, use code BOOM to get $30 off your first month. That's BOOM. Talkspace.com slash BOOM. B-O-O-M. You are Locked On Cavaliers, your daily podcast on the Cleveland Cavaliers. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Locked on Cavs podcast. Coming to you a little bit later on Friday, uh, just due to timing and stuff. But joining me today to talk through Game 5, to talk about the end of the series, and then we'll look ahead, start teasing next week's finals, uh, is Jared Weiss, yesterday's guest as well, from Celtics Blog and a variety of other places. Jared, what's going on? I am uh, enjoying the post-mortem rest of the Celtics season. Was that, What was the mood last night? I mean, obviously, from the cast perspective, you could see they were very elated. The guys were having a lot of fun. It was Derek Williams' birthday, uh, so he, got to, he gets to go to the finals and celebrates that on his birthday. What was the, the mood from the Celtics side of things last night? Um, you know, it's, it was another funeral for these guys. I mean, they, they were – I think they would have been able to hold their head high if they had lost in five, which a lot of us had expected, and they were just competitive. But this was an embarrassment. And they not only are they embarrassed for what happened, but I think they they look at it as for the guys that see themselves as the core that will definitely remain next season, which honestly is a, kind of a pretty small number of guys. Um, I think they are a little frustrated that they, that they weren't able to advertise themse- themselves as a better competitor for guys like, you know, Gordon Hayward and Blake Griffin that are probably going to be on the markets or obviously Hayward will be on the market. So that that is something that I think they have that they're aware of in the back of their mind, something that was kind of addressed today at uh, the exit meetings. I mean, Al Horford was pretty confident that what he, what they were able to do to him last summer, he'll be able to do to another potential free agent this summer. Um, but you know, getting those games in Cleveland, I think, was enough to show that they clearly like they're not complete. Like this team wasn't an overachieving team that showed up and had like no chance being there. They were for most of this series, but like the, those games in Cleveland prove pretty clearly that like the template that they have in place is definitely one to build off of and build for a real title contender. They're just from a town perspective, just so far away, and. I, I was having, I had this conversation with uh, Kevin O'Connor, the ringer, uh, last night after the game. Uh, and actually, a few, few uh, really, kind of like every reporter I was talking to about this after the game last night was the Celtics' philosophy, which isn't like obviously unique to them, but the whole thing of expected shot value and 
about the process and all that kind of stuff of how they're if they get good looks and they miss them it's okay because it was good looks and that's really what they're looking for and they'll come down eventually the problem is it's not as much of a lot of averages issue as much as of a skill issue it's like they'll get really good looks but those really good looks are going to people that aren't capable of consistently executing on them so at the end of the day, like this system is great, but it's going to require significantly better talent for it to actually work at a level that's good enough to win against a Cleveland team that, you know, it's it's still hard in the in the heat of the moment to tell if this Cleveland team is actually like an unbelievably great team or if they were just looking amazing against the Celtics and it was really the Globetrotters versus the Generals. Um, it's probably a little bit of both, honestly. I think a lot of the easy way outs that Cleveland could take on defense will not get work against Golden State. They're not going to be able to relax on the weak side against Golden State because uh, Golden State will have one of the best shooters of all time on in all corners of the court most of the time in this in this series. So, you know, I I, I came out of the series thinking um, I can't believe how good Cleveland is. I can't believe how good. LeBron and Kyrie and Kevin Love are playing right now, and Tristan Thompson is, you know, just unbelievable. And I always love this game, but I fell in love with it even more covering him this series. Um, you know, this finals is going to be super competitive, but I, 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 you know, I do worry about the Celtics just weren't enough of a competition for me to feel super confident in Cleveland, and that reflects back on the Celtics really poorly. Yeah, that's that's interesting thing because I think there's some things that, that Boston does that did prepare the Cavs, but. Like, it's just, like, it's harder to put LeBron on certain people. It's harder to like, let him roam and kind of play that Jabril Peppersy sort of role that people... <laughs> I, I got, if I'm in Cleveland, I got to do the football analogies. Like, I've done this... I've done that twice today, too, so I can't even, like... I mean, they got like, their Miles Garrett and Tristan Thompson. They might exactly. as well have their Jabril Peppers yeah, so, out there. So, that makes Kevin Love... Does that make Kevin Love uh, the tight end? David Nwoku? Nwaku? Does that make him the tight end? And then Oh, it certainly ain't it certainly ain't Gary Barnage, that's for sure. And yeah. I'll never draft him in fantasy again. That was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, I mean just shouldn't have drafted Browns in the first place. Yeah, that's um, true. That, that's totally okay. But um if you look at last night's game, there the Cavs just kind of wrapped it. I don't want to say it was like over early, but like they got out ahead early. And I think Boston like fought. They certainly were were making things uncomfortable in moments, but like Kevin loves hitting threes in the first moments of the game, and then it just kept building and building and building. And watching on TV, it was one of those things, one of those games where I certainly was like, okay, unless the Celtics do X, Y, and Z, this is gonna go a certain way. Was there any point where you thought they were gonna maybe get back in this game, or did, did you feel that it was kind of over, or at least kind of trending that way after the first 12, 20 minutes or so? It was after the first four minutes and 12 seconds, I believe. <laughs> I think that's when they got to that double-digit lead. Yeah. And it just it, it was game two all over again. Um, you know, when they open up these – when they open up with, like, a Kevin Love three-pointer, it's, like, it's just such a death blow because you're, like, we're going to – it's, like, if you're, if you're a team going up against Cleveland and, like, they open up with Kevin Love raining it down on you – you're like crap. So we don't even have to deal. We still have to deal with LeBron and Kyrie when they're going to go off in the second half, and we're and we're already getting killed by Kevin, who we know is going to switch to a mismatch post game in the second quarter at some point. Then he's going to start, you know, killing us in transition. With the, it's like they, it's like they, they have like it's like they have this like schedule of like how are we going to destroy you, mm-hmm. and it's just like one thing after another. And you know, really, when they have a guy going. They're so good at like you know, kind of like in between LeBron and Kyrie making plays, feeding that guy. 
And, like, all their guys go on, like, streaks. Like, Kyle Korver will, like, go on, like, a little streak within a game. Thompson the same way. Love the same way. JR the same way. Which, frankly, they didn't even get that much out of JR in the series, I felt. I mean, like, I'm really interested. That's a big question mark coming up for the finals is uh, what will his contribution be. But, um, you know, I, th- I thought Cleveland managed the series incredibly well. You know, as as much as Ty Lue may hurt his reputation with his post-game press conferences and I was the one that took the brunt of that as much as anybody. Um, he, I think he, him and his staff, and he has Mike Long, he has a Lombardi as his uh, defensive coordinator who is really good and was in Boston. I think that their defensive game plan was just like really, really great in the series. And they just, they just like crushed the Celtics on defense. And that just allowed so much transition. And you could just see early on in this game that was happening again. And Boston just got out of their offensive character really fast. And I asked Avery Bradley about it after the game. And he was saying, I was asking him, like, what's the difference between you guys in this series, home versus the road? And he was saying that they just, they just like, and I think um, Stevens used the word, it, wasn't, it was a haphazard. That was the word, the word that he was using in his postgame presser. He felt that they were haphazard early on. And I don't know if it was nervousness or exactly what it was, but Bradley conveyed that there was just – they weren't able to get into themselves for uh, – being get into their identity until it was too late. And then they would go on these nice little runs like Rogier. I think had like a 6 nothing run in the second quarter, stuff like that. And like that would be whittling the lead down to like 20 points. And like they're just they, – they had this like – major issue early in the year and a lot last year where they would fall into these holes and they would make these unbelievable comebacks to climb out of them. But like, obviously when you're in the conference finals, that happens to you once and the series is over. So the fact that it happened to them three times or I guess, I guess four times and they climbed out of it once, um, that one time they climbed out of it was impressive enough, but that's, you know, they could pull that off at a 50% success rate in the regular season, but against a team like Cleveland, the fact that it happens once is a miracle. Yeah. The Cavs, I think everything in that game last night, functionally like worked on like you didn't even have like super great performances for, i mean jr you mentioned one of three from three for him after i think he was four of eight i um, mean in game four this is probably his best game of the series love is only five of 13 but did what was three seven from three lebron i mean lebron was just sort of the reason that this sort of went a certain way i mean we you and i talked about this um after the last game this was the game where lebron actually like made his stamp on the series like this was lebron james making an impact making the type of plays you expect out of him and sort of dominating the way you would expect out of him. So that to me was just like when that happened, when he had that, I think it was like 20 to 27 and seven or 20 something and something in the first half. And it was just kind of like, okay, like LeBron's going to do this. And you had good game. Darren Williams had an amazing game off the bench. Um, was really, really good. And just a lot of things just seemed to break right for them in, in a way that just what do you do? I mean, if you're Boston, what do you do when the Cavs shoot 56.5% from the field and shoot 46% from three? Like, sometimes it is more complicated than just who shoots better. But when it's th- that, like, I just, you know, it's just like, what do you do? And I and I think that that's kind of where the Cavs won't have that advantage in the finals, right? Like, that's just not what something they're going to be able to do against a team like Golden State. Yeah, because, like, the difference there, like, I mean, obviously you can just simplify it as make more shots kind of thing, but the difference was Celtics couldn't execute their offense at all, and they got stuck on guys trying to make plays, and, like, Avery Bradley was the guy that was able to be the playmaker in the, the go-to score last night, and I think he had, what, 19 points or so, um, and he averaged, like, I think he averaged right around 20. It was, like, 19.7 for the series, so he did, he did a really good job. 
in this series. But the Celtics, their offensive like sets were just kind of they just weren't really working. They were just getting physically manhandled by Cleveland, and they weren't executing with the same level of clarity. And then it devolves into a transition game, and that's where really Cleveland really kills you. So like it's not about making more shots. It's about limiting pace and opportunity for Cleveland and making and, and executing your sets so that you're getting off good shots and then they're going to be going in more frequently because the pace in this game was over a hundred for like most of this game, which is like an insane pace. Like that's like, that's by far the highest for a game that the Celtics have played in the playoffs this year. I think their next closest was like 97.5 or something like that. So, I mean the, the, the rate at which Cleveland was able to go through offensive possessions meant that they were getting out to these like that's why the first quarter lead exploded so fast was because like the Celt the Celtics had a poor execution and then turn it over or miss a shot and then Cleveland was just out to the races super fast. So the Cleveland's lead comes from the speed at which they're able to get through their possessions, less so than them just like out shooting the Celtics to a significant degree. Yeah, I that's too true. Um LeBron James last night, I wanna get your take on this. He, he passes Michael Jordan for first all-time in playoff scoring with that three-pointer. And then I think he hit, ended up hitting three threes in a row as part of that one, just kind of being LeBron James. Um, finishes the, the night with his, with 35 points, has 5,995 playoff points in his career so far. More games than Jordan to get there, but uh, fewer shot attempts overall. So take that what you will. But, I mean, being there for that and just seeing him – do that and seeing how the Boston crowd reacted to it and just seeing how the players in that post-game press comment reacted to it. What, what was that just sort of like witnessing that? Because it was cool on TV. I imagine it was a lot cooler in person. It was insane. I mean, it, that that was, I think, the most remarkable press conference I've been around in person. I'm trying to think of other ones. Um, I think the, the one when it was the end for KG and Pierce was probably the other one that I would say coming close to that. The one where Doc Rivers returned to Boston with the Clippers and poured his heart out and cried that you know, that one too. But this one was different than those because those were sad, heartbreaking moments, end of era moments. This was like being in the presence of it would be like if you're a Dragon Ball Z fan, being there when Goku went Super Saiyan. And I hate that I always go to that geeky reference from my childhood, but like that's like that's like the only analogy I could think of for LeBron James because he's like transcending being a human, and you know I asked him I had the last question in the um, actually both Kyrie and LeBron's pressers I got lucky on that one but uh, LeBron had talked about for a few minutes now about how he thought it was impossible to ever be like Mike because Mike was a god, and I asked him what how do you feel now knowing that you've passed Mike in scoring. You thought this guy was unattainable because you didn't think he was human, but now you've proven to be, to at least this degree, his equal. How do you feel now for kids looking at you that idolize you in the same way and see you as the same kind of deity? And he said that it was like, that this has been his plan his entire career was to not not go for being the ultimate scorer, but to be the ultimate playmaker. And that, you know, I think I don't know if he repeated word for word his refrain from earlier in the day that he said many times about how I'm not a scorer, I'm a playmaker, which, of course, is what makes this him being the all time scorer so remarkable. And I think explains those caveats that you're bringing up before and kind of puts those to bed. Um, but 
this is something I've because I don't get to cover LeBron. So um, when I'm around him, I'm trying to like trying to get the most I can out of it of like understanding the essence of who he is, because I think he's the most fascinating athlete that I've ever been uh, that I've ever come across in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And he's he talked about how for him, the goal is to communicate and inspire all the kids out there that being a complete player and everything from making the pass, just hustling, grinding it out and dealing with your failures by building off of them, by trying to be even more complete of a player and trying to lift up everyone around you by bringing them all in and being all encompassing. That is what he's most proud of. And that's what he wants a kid to say that a kid made the extra pass because he saw LeBron James make, make the extra pass, stuff like that. And just like hearing that was just so incredible because he's achieving the most, you know, one of the most incredible individual achievements you can have. And, you know, as much as career, regular season, overall scoring titles important, I, I, I care way more about the playoff record. I mean, I think playoff records are the ones that really matter more than anything than the regular season records. But um, for him to be in that moment where he's being praised for being the scoring king for him to say for for me my legacy i want it to be everything else besides scoring that's i think the most remarkable part i think that like epitomizes why i think lebron is just so unbelievably remarkable and why anyone that wastes their time hating lebron james is just like missing out on life yeah uh, i think you're like right about that because you just I think he's amazing and you just have to kind of relish having this guy um, in the in your prime, like when you have this guy that is still here doing this stuff at age thirty-two, it's incredible, and it's cool to see his teammates just kind of get excited with him too. You know, like it's cool to see J.R. Smith um to be there and kind of joke with him, and um you have you have J.R. or Tristan Thompson making that face when LeBron said he didn't go bald. You know, like it's just these these like really great, just kind of fun moments. Like this team was just so alive, like after this game in a way I didn't necessarily expect them to be, but it's cool. Um, but let me just quickly say, J.R. Smith literally, he was handed, so I, I saw him get the trophy like 20 minutes before that, and it was mm-hmm. hanging out in the Cavs locker room, walking back with them through the tunnel. J.R. Smith never ever stopped making bodily contact with that trophy for like yeah. a 20 minute period it was yeah. incredible like he sat down at the podium and just like kept one hand on the ball i think he might have moved his hand to pet lebron's head when he said he wasn't going ball or something like that but like j i mean jr smith is one of the most entertaining people that's ever existed and uh you no know, he, he finally took his top off like after like half an hour still being clothed it took him forever but he finally got there but yeah to see like uh actually the best the only part that was better can i can i drop an f-bomb on the on the pod always, always. so the best part was uh, Tristan Thompson did an interview, and we were, and I was walking out with Tristan, and he's wearing like a like a like a satin bomber jacket and the gold Jesus piece and like glasses, and he walks up to J.R. Smith, and they're all taking and like they're taking photos with LeBron. I think Maverick Carter and LeBron just taking a photo stuff like that, and he walks up to J.R. and J.R. goes, "Look at this motherfucker, I'll be sure over here." <laughs> they all just like died laughing, and it was the funniest. It was it was just incredible. It's like J.R. Smith is always on at a degree that is just remarkable. It's like, I don't know if it's just like he has like a constant supply of Hennessy going into his bloodstream or something like that, but he is like, the, Cleveland just has this amazing cast of characters that not only make them incredible from a basketball perspective, but like entertaining, just like endlessly entertaining. That's, that's one of the reasons why I love this team so much. Um, he's very honest and like almost to a fault. 
Not oh, like def- not, definitely like, to a fault. Like sometimes he should just like not um not that he like shouldn't say stuff. Like or that he shouldn't do anything, but like there's the if you think about the two years ago when LeBron like hit I don't know if you remember the game where he hit that game winner in Chicago and there was like the annoyance with Blad after the game because he wanted LeBron to inbound the ball. JR's the one who told everybody about that. <laughs> like JR's just like yeah like that's what happened like of course, you know not a big deal that's like not um it's 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 good for us like it's good for us to know that stuff and to to enjoy that stuff but not not exactly the 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 best thing you necessarily want but I mean you you look back at this series you meant, we hit on this a little bit do you feel like you learned anything more about the Cavs as someone who's not watching them on a day to day basis not or like as a fan, if you we have fans listening. They're not listening. They're not. You're, they're not. They're watching the team all the time. Like that's the team they watch the most. You watch the Celtics the most, I would assume. Yeah. Did you learn anything about the Cavs that makes you change your kind of opinion of what they might do in the finals? Well, yeah, because I mean, everybody was talking about how there's just no way they could flip the switch to a degree that would be enough for them to win a title, and how like the Lakers in 2001 were like the only team that came close to making the leap to champion from the defensive rating that they had. And I don't think that means anything anymore. You know, precedents get broken. Trends get debunked. You know, it happens. And I'm pretty sure that's what Cleveland's doing right now. There's a, I mean, I know there's the caveats that I talked about before. LeBron is going to have to be engaged on defense every single play, which could hurt him to a degree. Um, they're not going to be able to be as lax on the weak side on defense as they've been able to do with not recovering the shooters. But like, I think their defense turned it on really, really well. Their game planning worked. Like they, for whatever defensive uh, lapses that they had uh, overall, I think that they very clearly came in with a good defensive game plan and executed it very well. Their um, their hard shows on pick and rolls against Isaiah Thomas like really, really worked well. Um, and then I mean, obviously the injury was a huge factor there, but like I don't think the injury is the reason why Thomas was struggling. It, it, I think it, it it went from Thomas probably scoring 28 points on like eight for 25 shooting to like Isaiah, like barely even scoring at all. So like he, they, that game plan was going to work no matter what, no matter whether Thomas was injured or not. And Al Horford who was like one of like the MVPs of the playoffs coming to the series. They did an amazing job neutralizing him. Uh, all the, all the things that he could have done compared to like the last time they played to try to rectify the uh, the Cavs blitzing and hard showing and like the, them kind of selling out to stop Isaiah Thomas, they did a great job communicating weak side defenders to rotate over and get underneath Horford and limit the Celtics' ability to actually kind of like break them down and get deep into the paint. And the Celtics really struggled to get the ball in the paint for most of this series. And you know they got super creative to make it happen, and that's why Ty Lue was making those comments about. Um, about the Celtics offense being more complicated than the Golden State Warriors offense. Like, yeah, the Celtics were executing some, like, absurdly complicated stuff there. Like, Avery Bradley running and, like, you know, like all sorts of weird weaves for, like, 20 seconds to emerge eventually and get a shot. Using Kelly Olynyk to, like, run, like, cross, cr- all sorts of weird cross actions and, like, the low post, all sorts of stuff like that. Like, the Celtics had to get unbelievably creative. And it was creative to the point that, like, it couldn't, they couldn't really sustain it. And... I think Cleveland just they deserve so much credit for being able to come up with a game plan that worked. And then I think being able to adjust that game plan throughout the series to maintain their advantage 
and like Boston, like you know, Brad Stevens, like flexed his muscles, his coaching muscles in the series to the point that I think the extreme hype that's always surrounded him. I think he finally like built up enough resume and enough accomplishment to actually be deserving of the hype. He's always been a great coach, but again, like, like accomplish enough to actually like be to be up there at that top tier of coaches. But like now, I think he's pretty much proven it, even if the series went pretty poorly. But like Ty Lue kept up with him, and the and the Cavs' defensive execution overall, I think, kept up. And there, there's like there's like flipping the switch, and then there's like showing that you actually it's not just like you can start like playing harder but you can be smart and creative enough and capable enough to be able to continue to evolve throughout the playoffs because teams have to evolve throughout the playoffs they're going to have who they are but then everything's going to go wrong and things are going to get crazy and you have to be able to evolve and become to look different and become different to a certain degree to be able to survive and i think cleveland did that incredibly well they're going to have to do that, I think, again to another degree in the finals. I don't know what exactly it will entail. I don't know if it means seeing more Channing Fry. I don't know, which he didn't play very much against Boston. I don't know if it's as simple as LeBron James being a superhuman and, and just destroying all these things and winning. But it's going to be interesting. Uh, do you have, I mean, just looking now, do you have an early pick for the finals? Or have you not thought enough quite into that yet? I mean, like, just like right off the top of my head, Warriors and Six feels like the natural pick, but. I might, yeah, I'm, I'm going to need the week to make, like, a final pick. But, yeah, like, a rough, a rough draft I'll turn in is Warriors and Six. But I, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think there's anything that would make me pick the Cavs in this series. Um, but, like, it could, I could feel like it could go seven if, um, you know, I really dive back into the tape on, like, the Warriors versus the Spurs and see, like, what do the Spurs do that could be comparable. But, like... Yeah, the the Warriors are are stupid good. It's yeah. it's silly. The Cavs the Cavs are a great team. The Warriors are like a, a stupidly comically great team. Yeah, hundred percent with you on that. I think them in seven is probably my early pick, but we'll see. I mean, it could be short. Like it wouldn't shock me if this ended up being short if they just obliterated the Cavs. Um, you know, in some way. Uh, last thing, but I don't think this will be the last time the Cavs see the Celtics in the playoffs I, I can i can obviously see a scenario next year where these two teams play again where these two teams are squared off again you've hit on this you've you've hit it some of the some of the stuff and a lot everyone out there i'm sure knows some of what the guys of boston has been linked to and, and will continue to be linked to and then you know they're gonna get the number one pick and that's probably markel fultz but what do you think or who do you think they they need to go get this summer or and what, what type of player do they need to get this summer in order to next year have a better chance of taking down the Cavs and ending the LeBron's kind of LeBron's legitimately seven year long stranglehold on the East. Oh my God. I still can't believe that one, but it's, it's um, him and James Jones, man, James Jones. Too. Yeah. Well, I, the real question is who's better. Who's a better winner, James Jones or LeBron James. Um, so, uh, like they can they can sign Gordon Hayward and then just be right back where they are with a I would say a significantly better team because the one thing that we saw you know I lo- I thought it was really funny and completely unsurprising of all the the Celtics are better without Isaiah Thomas takes that came out of Game Three and then like you know they got through Game Three the Ewing theory you know obviously kicked in there it usually does um, and then after that their offense was just like was was completely um just like it wasn't was in danger 
of failing the entire time because they didn't have Isaiah Thomas to clean up on everything whenever the offense stopped executing. It's like you need these great players because in the playoffs, your systems only work so much of the time, and there's so much where you just need your great player to go and get you a bucket. We saw Kyrie do that a ton to an absurd degree, and we saw Isaiah obviously – I mean uh, LeBron do it a ton. So like getting Gordon Hayward gives them that second guy that they can feel like pretty comfortable, can get them a bucket whenever they need to, and doesn't really need to rely on the system and the ball movement and the defense not being able to like get away with holds and physical stuff and stuff like that to be able to get a bucket. So like they very obviously need another really good score so that they're not relying on Thomas. You give them that second guy and a guy like Hayward or like maybe Blake Griffin, assuming that he gets healthy. Um, and they're definitely good enough to compete with the Cavs, but they're not, I think it's, they're pretty obviously not on paper as good as the Cavs. And as we saw in practice, not as good as the Cavs. So, you know, I, I, if they draft Markel Fultz and then are able to sign one of Hayward and Griffin, and that's all that they're able to do, um, and that probably means Marcus Smart or Avery Bradley has to go for them to be able to acquire those guys, as well as like every other like back of the roster player that you saw play in the series. Um, you know that team is like that team is like I think definitely better than they were this year because they're going to be even if there's some capabilities defensively that they have this year that they wouldn't have next year their consistency will be a lot better because like just having Hayward this team is like super inconsistent and the Celtics were constantly you know Stevens was constantly trying to find somebody to fill in when somebody else wasn't consistent enough and Stevens an incredible like an unbelievable job of being able to get far enough by just constantly plugging in and trying to find people that were actually effective on like an almost like minute by minute basis. But like that's that's obviously too much of a challenge. And it's there's not enough of a success rate in doing that, that like eventually you get killed. And that's why they would be a lot better overall in the long run if they are able to just get a, a really good free agent signing. And then, of course, adding Fultz to like Fultz in his rookie year. I don't expect him to be like an 18 point score, but He'll probably be pretty good and like pretty useful. Like he'll 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 be able to do a lot of really good stuff, and he'll be able to be a valuable bench player in the way that Jalen Brown was this year. And actually, I think he'll be more effective next year than Jalen Brown was this year. Yeah, I really like Jalen Brown. I really really enjoy um, me too him more. I think he's gonna be really good. I think um, I would be very intrigued to see if they would go after like go all in and do the like maybe offer the number one pick for somebody um no i don't think there's they will, like though. i don't think they will but i'd be interested if they did because i think it, it, I, I i really like hayward i don't 100 percent i think he helps i don't know if he just because of his, what he is on defense i don't know if he's like the the exact thing you need um, I think you need a rebounder, and I think you need someone like Hayward, but I think you'd want someone that's maybe a little bit more capable of going mano a mano with LeBron. I, I, I think I think you're underselling Hayward's uh, uh, overall ability. Um, you know, mano a mano with LeBron, like that's obviously it's a, that's that, like that's like a like Paul George, George kind that's of. That's what I'm saying. Cast, like right? if you can get Paul George, which like that that situation is just kind of a mess. Just with what Indiana is facing and like the Lakers stuff, and like I don't know if you'd want to dive into that, you know, like and and if you can't oh, get him to resign, like what's the point, you know, like if you can't get him to sign after you give up a number one pick to get him, then you sort of like what's the point? 
I don't. I got my bathing suit on. I'm ready to dive in on this one. I don't think they would trade the number one pick in the draft for Paul George. I don't think they. I don't think they would want that. Uh, e- even I want to really go out on a limb here and say, even if they they had a guarantee for a four year deal uh, extension with him, I still am not confident that they would be willing to do that tr- trade. I, I I would I'd have to really think long and hard about that one. And I, I'm not a massive Paul George fan, but I do think he is very good. Um, it's also really hard to project what a guy will do coming out of a bad situation. I mean, we saw Isaiah Thomas come out of a bad situation and become an incredible player. Paul George, I just, you know, if you're watching the way that that Indiana team, you know, really melted down and the way that he really kind of called out his teammates and stuff like that, that I thought that showed incredibly poor leadership and, he, I, he, he hurt his reputation in my eyes there, but he's also unbelievably frustrated. And, you know, Paul Pierce was in a similar position the year before they got, um, before they got the big three in 2007. So, you know, Paul Pierce ended up becoming a historically great leader. So, so it's so hard to project Paul George as a leader and what he would be able to do differently as a player. But like, I don't think putting Paul George onto this team and sending back Jay Crowder and Avery Bradley or Marcus Smart or whoever it ended up being, I don't think that necessarily puts them over the top over um, Cleveland. And if you were to include the number one pick in the draft this year to do that, I think that would be a massive mistake. However, next year's pick, I think that would be a great trade. Yeah. And I think that's what might actually happen is I don't think there's anyone that we think of as being on the market in the conversation for the number one pick this year. Um, I think Fultz is just that good. Um, but I really do think that Indiana would be ta- would be able to be talked into with enough pressure from Paul George's agent to make a trade for next year's Brooklyn pick plus, you know, Jay Crowder and Marcus Smart or Avery Bradley and probably, you know, Gershon Yabuselli and maybe another talent. And that would be a great trade if they're able to obviously get a contract extension with Paul George, if they let Paul George have free agency, that would obviously be a disaster. But, you know, Kevin Love, you know, he signed that deal when uh, the Cavs made that trade. Um, You know, I'm pretty sure the Celtics would be able to get that long-term agreement in place. And I I mean, I, I don't know exactly how this would work, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were able to kind of make that agreement happen before they even officially acquired him. That's, that's what the Cavs have with Love was. I think there was an understanding that he would, be committed for more than that year Um, because giving up Wiggins wasn't I don't think an easy choice and don't think they expected to do it necessarily until they knew LeBron was coming back Um, I I think out of all the teams that the Cavs could face next year in terms of being a threat in the East Boston is the best path to gearing up and that's just what makes them so intriguing I think it's because they have a really great coach they have Isaiah they have all these other really good guys that are going to be probably made even better with a another star um, to, to give you a big three of Horford, Isaiah, and somebody else. Washington can't gear up that way. Toronto probably cannot gear up that way unless Masai does some does some wizardry. But, like, is there anyone else in the East that can get to that level? I'm going to argue no. That's It's not really possible. Yeah, like Milwaukee, like, could potentially get closer it, it, there. But I don't think I don't think they will. I mean, I think Milwaukee could probably get to being a 50-win team, but I don't think they would be able to come that close to Cleveland in the conference finals matchup. I um I think they're the like the the them and the the 
if you look in the future, I think the, I think that it's got to be Bucks and Celtics are the two teams most likely to take down the Cavs. Like that, yeah. it's just like Giannis, or the team that has the ability to go get a, a young stud and has all these really good players already, and which is just a pretty interesting, um, thing. Yeah, and, you know, and, and another guy we didn't talk about is Porzingis. Like, obviously, I would be really surprised if New York moved him. But, um, you know, if the Celtics can talk New York into taking a couple first-round picks that doesn't include this year's pick, uh, they you know, there's always that possibility. And, like, Porzingis is the kind of guy that it's a situation where you'd really love to really throw a ton of assets at him. Because not only do you know he's an unbelievable prospect, but he's, he's like, what is he, 21 right now or something like that? He's unbelievably young. He's still on his rookie deal. He's super cheap. So that would be the other target that is a remote possibility. But I would be like, I, I you'd have to throw a pretty insane offer at New York to get them to take it. However, the Celtics have the ability to throw out insane offers because they have so many picks. And New York just needs a, they, New York needs a lot of young. They need a lot of draft picks. And it would be a mistake to get rid of Porzingis. They should draft a guy like Dennis Smith or something like that this year to get a good point guard that they can put the ball in his hands and develop, uh, you know, develop that uh, partnership between Porzingis and that guy. But I also don't tend to expect New York to make logical moves because of who's at the helm, even though they have lots of great people working in their front office. The direction from the top is obviously pretty concerning. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be an incredible finals. It's going to be a really interesting offseason for both the Cavs and the Celtics. And Jared, uh, thank you again for coming on. We'll have to do this again sometime in the summer, sometime next year when these two, two teams inevitably uh, square off again. And maybe I, I could actually see Cavs-Celtics being a fun opening night game, looking ahead a little bit. Uh, we should we'll get Adam Silver on the horn and have them yeah, set that my, up. my my close personal friend Adam Adam Silver we'll get, we'll get him on we'll get him on the horn and be like yo Adam uh, let's do Cavs Celtics hey I'll tell you that. Adam Adam's one of the nicest guys I've ever met and he does take all suggestions very seriously so I'm sure he would be willing to listen yeah and he just he he won't get booted lotteries which is a positive uh <laughs> so it'll be fun Jared thanks again uh, Cavs fans out there listening to this pod we will be back on Monday. Uh, we'll have a mailbag, so get those questions in uh, on Locked on Cavs on Twitter to LockedOnCavs at gmail.com or over on our backslash Cleveland Cavs. And we'll be gearing up for the finals all next week. Got a couple great guests already locked up. Going to be a good week, pun intended there, for the Locked on Podcast Network. And we'll talk to you guys again after the weekend. Cavs again in the finals. And it's going to be interesting one way or the other.